Well, hello and welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies on Liberty. This is episode 81 of On Liberty. I'm your host, Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director of the Centre for Independent Studies and I'm filling in for my colleague, Salvatore Babonis. Now, today on the show, Ukraine, Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine has opened up a new era in global politics and as a consequence, it has seriously undermined the post-Cold War international order, the so-called rules-based liberal international order. Now, to address the Ukraine crisis, uh, to put it in a broader historical context, and to address what's likely to happen in the coming months, we're pleased to be joined by Catherine Stoner from California. Now, Catherine is Professor of Political Science at Stanford University and author of Russia Resurrected, its power and purpose in a new global order. Hi there, Catherine. Welcome to CIS. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. First question, why Ukraine and why now? So uh, I think there are a bunch of reasons uh, for this. Um, I First, uh, Mr. Putin has a bit of an obsession with um, Ukraine as a friendly, he would say brotherly, culture to Russia's and that um, that there actually is no independent Ukrainian state. He told us this, if you'll remember, about two weeks ago in a, in a somewhat bizarre speech that he gave, explaining his understanding of Russian-Ukrainian relations. And he actually wrote an essay about this as well uh, in the summer of 2021, talking about his understanding of Russian-Ukrainian history. And he doesn't really see it as an independent country. He kind of views it as uh, uh, Russia having even the, uh, you know, ownership of the Crimean Peninsula is uncontroversial because, as he t he he told us in his speech uh, two weeks ago, uh, Nikita Khrushchev accidentally gave um, Ukraine uh, at, when it was a Republic of the Soviet Union, Crimea, and it it really was you know an un unusual thing and not meant to be part of Ukraine. And so he he sees all of Ukraine, not just the Crimean Peninsula, as uh, part of Russia, rightly. By the way, he also sees Belarus this way and, and himself as kind of a gatherer of the lands uh, of uh, Novorossiya, this new Russia he has in mind, which is really old Russia. So the second question is why now? And that's the bazillion dollar question. Um, and there are probably a couple of reasons for this. One is opportunity. Um, you know, if you looked at the president of uh, Ukraine, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's approval ratings before this, now we look at him as an international media star. And I know women around the world are saying swooning over him. Um, but, you know, he had about a 38, 39 percent uh, approval rating. Um, until about a month and a half ago. He didn't look like a particularly successful president uh, in the way that we're seeing him now. Um, so Mr. Putin may have seen opportunity in that, thinking that Ukrainians unhappy with this president may actually welcome uh, this so-called liberation um, from, uh, from Zelensky. He's wrong there, of course, but yeah, you know, might have thought that. And I think the other thing is a perception of um, the U.S. withdrawing internationally. Europe being uh, in a bit of disarray after uh, Angela Merkel and Germany not really, you know, the, the economic power of Europe having a little trouble getting a government together. And then the sort of debacle of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. So all of these things together may have played a role 
And do you uh, think this explains now? why Putin may have miscalculated here? This is certainly the widespread view that he has miscalculated. And uh, he did not think, for instance, that the Ukrainian resistance would be as fierce as it clearly has been during the course of the last fortnight. Catherine. Yeah, that's right. I think he has miscalculated. Um, you know, there was a long buildup um, to this. Um, and, um, uh, you know, he they were also they were ready. The Russians were ready um, as, as far as they knew. But they but I think that he did miscalculate um the the strength of uh the ukrainian resistance to be sure i mean we've done this we did this in the united states uh with the you know in iraq um when saddam hussein um you know uh we we tried to to basically bomb them into uh, oblivion and mm. we were not met in the way that dick cheney assured we president bush we would be um by you know friendly iraqis who wanted to um, be liberated by Saddam Hussein instead. It was welcome them with flowers. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and instead, I think the Ukrainians have welcomed them with Molotov cocktails. Not not. <laughs> That's right. I do think that was a surprise. <laughs> Let me run a quote by you. This is what you told the Sunday Times in London a few weeks ago, that Russia had developed quote an outsized ability to exercise considerable influence abroad, and despite having an economy smaller than Italy's. Russia has managed to spread its tentacles around the world. Mm -hmm. You went on to say to the Sunday Times, quote, the strategy is reminiscent of that pursued by the Soviet Union, which was locked for decades after the Second World War in a global battle of influence with America. Now, that's what you said to uh, the Sunday Times. It's essentially a succinct summary of your thesis, uh, Catherine. But uh, hasn't the Russian invasion... Uh, which clearly hasn't gone as well as anticipated from the Kremlin's point of view, doesn't that show the very real limits of power for Russia? Um, I think it's too early to say that. Um, we, we don't exactly know what their battle plan was other than overwhelming force, right? Um, and there were up to 190,000 troops. Now, only now, in the last 24 to 36 hours, do we do we have intelligence that indicates that that all of those forces have have entered Ukraine. Um, also, I think that Russia has not used all that it has. And unfortunately, although I think that Ukrainian fighters have been amazing, and the spirit of the Ukrainian people is incredible. I mean, there there just is is you know no denying the facts that that russia could overwhelm them quite quickly and um it, 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 and eventually they will do that the reason i think they've not used the full power that they have is they don't want to level cities um but they're starting to do that and kharkiv we're seeing uh mariupol in the east um it's uh sadly i think it's going to get quite nasty um and and quite devastating for um, Ukrainian infrastructure. So I, I think it's too early to say that the Russians have quote unquote lost. Again, I'll just invoke Iraq when you know this is kind of the only other time we've seen yeah. you know a superpower try to try to absorb another country, um, a huge country as well, 44 million people. Ukraine is the largest country geographically in Europe, except for Russia, if you count yeah. Russia as part of Europe. It seems to me so, that the, the, the conventional wisdom in a lot of the American mainstream papers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, um, the consensus is that uh, Putin's Russia is very similar to the old Soviet Union. 
But then there are skeptics who say that Russia today is really just a giant gas station with a vast mm -hmm. arsenal of nuclear weapons. What's your sense? I mean, what distinguishes Putin's Russia from the old Soviet Union, Catherine? Oh, so lots of things. Of course, the first thing is is it's physically smaller. The Soviet Union was larger. It was, you know, uh, um, included those 15 republics. So physically, it's much smaller. It's still, though, the largest country on Earth, geographically speaking, has a much smaller population. And it has a, you know, powerful military, but it, it, it's still in terms of numbers. If you if you look at the number of um, uh, uh, men are, and, and women in the defense forces, it's much smaller. However, I would say it's pretty capable um, and it's purposely smaller than it was. Uh, it's not made anymore to build, to fight a continental war uh, militarily. It's, it's, uh, it's been modernized. The other big thing I think aside from size and, and the size of the economy is of course much smaller because the, the country is smaller than the Soviet Union um, is um, there is no ideology that drives this, mm -hmm. right? There's no sort of transformational futuristic ideology like communism where we're all going to live better um, following a Russian model. There is a kind of attempt at a, a, a well, a illiberal conservative um, uh, philosophy, I suppose, um, and Putin has painted this out at, at different times, including in an um, interview in the Financial Times in, in 2019, talking about how liberalism has died. But I think this is, you know, appealing only to the, the converted or preaching to the choir in this mm. respect, right? This is this is appealing only to um, societies that are that are friendly that way. Um, so not really trying to spread this um, so much in the way, you know, that's that's largely what drew uh, or drove Soviet foreign policy. Um, and, uh, you know, there was obviously geostrategic aspect to Soviet foreign policy too, but, you know, they really were trying to establish communist governments globally. And that's certainly not the goal of Russian foreign policy today. Okay. It's also Let's talk a capitalist about country. Right? It's the beginning of the crisis. Now, you argued uh, in the lead up to the invasion that there is no threat to Russia via Ukraine from the US or NATO. And I think that is the conventional wisdom, certainly in the Western world. Let me put this to you, because we like to challenge our guests, Catherine, <laughs> that a rule of diplomacy is sometimes to step back and try to put yourself in your opponent's shoes and look at the world from their perspective. Now, bearing that rule in mind, doesn't Russia have legitimate security interests in its near abroad, like other great powers, and that might explain why Putin here, like any leader in the Kremlin, is playing hardball to protect those vital interests in what Russia has long seen as its traditional sphere of influence. Catherine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's a pretty easy ball to hit out of the air for to use a tennis metaphor. I'm a big fan of the Australian Open. So, um, and, um, it, it, so no, um, <laughs> NATO hadn't expanded to Russia's borders since 2004, and that was the Baltic republics of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Um, Ukraine was not about to be, or just about to be, uh, a member of NATO. Um, it is. It would love to be a member of NATO, and I think we can see why. Um, but uh, you know, that was uh, really a question that was put to rest in 2008, sort of kicked down the road. And if we look at how uh, other members of NATO have acceded um, to the organization, it is a process that has taken eight to ten years. And so it wasn't as though an accession agreement was about to be signed, or that a, a membership action plan had had been signed or developed. None of that had happened. 
Um, so it's not that it, it, the pretext for this is nonsense, to be to be honest, right? What about that uh, agreement reached in late November between Ukraine and NATO? Um, this has obviously upset uh, Putin's sensibilities, but but also um, couldn't you what couldn't one argue? This is the criticism that's often made that the mm -hmm. the Americans and, and Brussels by aiding and arming the Ukrainians, they've essentially turned Ukraine into a de facto NATO ally, and that spooks the Russians who see, you know, Ukraine as a vast stretch of flat land that Napoleonic France and Nazi Germany crossed to attack Russia. So that's why it's such a sensitive issue for Russia. How would you respond right. to that argument? Well, first of all, okay, NATO had, had not promised a session. Uh, in 2014, let's just remember, Russia invaded um, and annexed Ukrainian territory. Um, and so if, uh, if uh, munitions and training were offered to a sovereign country that is Ukraine by other sovereign countries, um, I think they had good reason to do that, right? And that's something that Mr. Putin brought on himself. That is not something NATO did to him or Ukraine for that matter. In, in 1994, Mr. Putin's predecessor, not immediate, but the one before, because Putin's been in office so long, um, Boris Yeltsin signed something called the Budapest Memorandum um, that uh, recognized Ukrainian sovereignty in exchange for the nuclear weapons that were legacy weapons from the Soviet period left in, in Ukraine. And so the only agreement that has been broken um, is the is that agreement um, by uh, by Mr. Putin? He just sweeps that handily out of the way. Um, so again, this isn't about NATO expansion, and mm -hmm. it isn't about Ukraine getting military help. Um, it, it is about sovereignty, and it's about Ukrainian sovereignty. And you know, in the, in the 18th century or the 19th century, pardon me, um, we may have worried about Napoleon coming across the step. Now we have a thing called airplanes. And so, you know, if, if we wanted to attack Russia, we would use airplanes and, and missiles. We would not necessarily come across the Ukrainian steppe. So, again, this is also nonsense and appealing to a certain version of history. Mm -hmm. And here in the 21st century, we, we respect state sovereignty. Yeah. Um, and that's when we're living. And now, on ABC's Radio National like a few weeks ago, um, I hosted a debate, a very lively debate between mm -hmm. you and John Mearsheimer, the mm -hmm. professor of political science from the University of Chicago, who's been a past guest here at CIS, and you can see his videos online on the YouTube mm -hmm. channel. Um, but he, he'd say it's not just NATO expansion, Catherine. He'd also argue it's EU expansion, yeah. but also the colour revolutions. And he'd argue that the, the Western support for the coup to bring down Yanukovych, the Kremlin's man in, in Kiev in early 2014, mm -hmm. that, that scared the bejesus out of the Russians. And that's what prompted Putin to go into Crimea, which is the home of the Black Sea Fleet. Mm -hmm. So I suppose the question here is, because you make the point that Putin has a long history of using an aggressive foreign policy to bolster his standing in Russia. Isn't aren't these examples like the Crimea example and this example a reaction to what Russia might say is provocative uh, policy towards uh, Moscow? Catherine? Nope. So I'll say the same thing. I've I've nearly shrieked at John Mearsheimer. <laughs> it was a lovely debate, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's exactly the Kremlin's argument, and John repeats it beautifully. But, you know, uh, that's that's nonsense. Um, so Western support 
for for Yanukovych's ouster. I don't. Uh, so this is how Putin sees the world, right? Um, and evidently John too, uh, that the Ukrainian people in 2014 are incapable of organizing and actually ousting a leader without the help of the West uh, and the CIA. You know, I wish the CIA was that capable, but they're not. Um, that actually happens to be uh, something called popular mobilization against an autocrat. And the threat to Russia there is not a threat to Russia, it's a threat to Putin. He doesn't want Russians to look at that and say, why not us? They got rid of their corrupt um, you know, uh, leader who was stealing from the state and from us. Why can't we do that? And that's the threat here. And that has nothing to do with the West supporting it or not, which we didn't. Um, the other thing about the Black Sea Fleet, well, the Black Sea Fleet was never in danger. Um, the, the Russians have long had a lease on uh, Sevastopol where they um, have, a, that's where the base is. That was not in danger. And in fact, it's a revenue source that the government in Ukraine needed. So no one was, was seriously threatening that. So that's also nonsense. Um, and so to, to say the EU expansion, well, again, we live in the 21st century and John <clears throat> tends to want to live in the 19th with Vladimir Putin. We, we sovereign countries make their own decisions about what what you what economic or military unions they they want to be part of and, and that's what ukraine was doing yeah now, uh, Kathy, so we've got a question country. here on a related issue it's uh, mm -hmm. by prash and uh, the question is why can't nato and russia just agree to keep ukraine as a neutral country a bit like mm -hmm. a buffer state a bit like austria at the height of the cold war what's wrong with that idea um well, um, it, it's it's not up to us to decide what Ukraine will be, um, us and Russia, as though, again, that's sort of a, a realist, Mearsheimerian way of looking at things, um, right? It's not us to decide whether or not uh, Ukraine is neutral. That's really up to Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. I think we can see what would happen if Mr. Zelensky agreed to that, and that is that Russia would not respect the neutrality. So I think it's a pretty hollow Okay. um offer um and now, he would also be about, ousted by his own let's people. talk about putin and because yeah. you've written a lot about this catherine uh that the domestic political considerations are plainly a central concern for putin you've made that point and that may help explain his conduct mm -hmm. how much support uh because there's a widespread view in the west that uh, putin has badly miscalculated by going beyond the donbass and crimea it's a widespread view how much support at this stage do you suspect uh, Putin enjoys, uh, not just within the Kremlin, but the broader Russian public? Well, uh, I think it's actually, you know, with the caveat that, that state media is pretty tightly controlled and the message is pretty tightly controlled. Um, before the, um, the, the invasion, his actually his approval ratings were going up. Um, but again, the message is very tightly controlled, right? And so it, it, we've seen in the last year and a half, two years in particular, um, a real attack on civil society and, and on any kind of real opposition, very controlled elections to the to the state Duma in, in the fall. Um, but, you know, there is, a, there is certainly um, a, a large segment of the Russian population that is supportive of um, Mr. Putin, but there's no real alternative. Um, so... How genuine that support is, is, is something people have been trying to get at um, and there are different ways of doing it. But, you know, without a without a real opposition and with, without a free media, it's, it's you know, hard to know. 
I yeah, think no, people's if, lives are going to be pretty severely impacted. Yeah, well, by I was going to say, if, if the military uh, campaign deteriorates from Russia's perspective, mm -hmm. and if living standards in Russia deteriorate as a result of the coordinated US-led uh, sanctions from the developed world, um, mm -hmm. he'll be, presumably, you would think uh, he'd be in a lot of trouble. In those circumstances, could he risk a, a palace coup? Catherine? Yeah, so it, you know that's the again bazillion dollar question. So right, so these um, these sanctions are are aimed at um, some very wealthy people, but they're also you know now going to hit the average person. Even gosh, even Starbucks is closing uh, in in Russia and Pepsi Cola as well. Yeah, exactly right. Um, it's very hard to fly out of the country now because airspace is closed uh, around most of Russia, although not with not I think with China. Um, so, or, or Central Asia, but European airspace. So this is going to start to hurt people who, you know, average people who had become accustomed over the last 30 years to, you know, an, uh, an upper middle income country lifestyle, going to Turkey or Europe on vacations, sending your kids abroad, and, and this isn't going to be uh, possible anymore. So for the very rich people and, and also for the, you know, for the circle around him, this has also hurt them because their assets are, are frozen. So question of a palace coup, we're not seeing clear signs of anything like that um, yet. Um, but we're seeing, you know, I was speaking to a Russian journalist today and, you know, they're saying that that, that some of the very wealthy have, um, including um, uh, Abramovich, who uh, is, is based in London, but a very wealthy guy, um, a Russian oligarch, I guess you would call him, uh, encouraging and um, pressing for these these peace talks. But I don't think Mr. Putin's heart's really in that. Okay, now the NATO campaign is intensifying with the arming of the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. uh, from the Kremlin's perspective, as I said before, they feel that this is an existential threat to Russia. Um, and look, frankly, a good argument could be made, Catherine, that Ukraine matters more to Russia course, than it yeah. ever will to Brussels or Washington, just because of the sheer proximity to Russia. Um, won't we now expect Putin, in the face of this concerted Western campaign to arm the Ukrainians, won't we expect Putin just to redouble his efforts and continue mm -hmm. this bombardment and wreck Ukraine until he insists uh, that it can never be part of NATO? Catherine? Well, you know, you can. one can certainly see that distinct possibility. I think, though, that with the media coverage and the way in which the Ukrainians actually have used the media pretty and, and public diplomacy pretty effectively. I mean, it, it's intriguing that their their president is a TV star, right? Literally, uh, that's mm. what Zelensky did before he was an actor. He's a comedian, but also a businessman. Um, and he's they've been pretty savvy with getting the message across. And then also we are just getting, you know, Americans are, are infamously self-absorbed. Um, I'm not sure about Australians, but certainly we can be here. Yeah, limited um, attention spans. <laughs> exactly. And also not, you know, knowing, you know, more concerned about, about our own polarized politics. But we are just bombarded here, as you likely are as well, of media images of uh, civilians running mm, or leaving terrible. and two million yeah. refugees. Mm. So I think we've gotten past the point where where they care more uh, about okay. Ukraine. You know, I well, think now we're we're getting to all care a lot about Ukraine. It's symbolic, if nothing else. It seems to me that the two key questions in coming weeks and months is how far Putin will go, but also following on from your point you just made, Catherine, how united the West will be. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think he, he has miscalculated. I, I do think that was part of the reason that the Biden administration was <laughs> leaking um, intelligence. Um, it, it was signaling, we know what you're doing in terms of the buildup at Ukraine's border of, of Russian military forces, but also convincing our allies. And you'll remember there was a lot of shuttle diplomacy before um, this attack that, hey, it's going to happen. And what are we going to do? And so I think the ground had been um, had already been um, laid for these kinds of agreements. And that's why we've been able to do it so so quickly and in a unified way. And I think that did surprise uh, Mr. Putin. He was not yeah. anticipating Another question from one of our um, members. Disapproval ratings of opposition figures like Alexei Navalny are around 70%. Surely it's just a Western fantasy that Putin will be toppled by a pro-Western figure. Um, but, which, I mean, th there is a sense, I think, in the West that if only we got rid of Putin, somehow mm -hmm. Russia's ambitions would be constrained. Um, is, it, is it more complicated than that? Uh, yeah. Well, so first of all, disapproval ratings of Navalny. Well, Navalny's in jail, um, right? And the official line on him, which is on state television, is that, hmm. you know, he's a terrorist. So I wouldn't put much stock in that. And I, I don't, I'm not aware of a 60% number anyway. But I don't think we're waiting or looking for um, a, a toppling of uh, Putin by a democratic figure because he's jailed most of them and driven mm. most of them out. That's what Russia has become. It has mm. it has steadily become a personalized, now one might even say dictatorship. Um, so what's more likely to happen is some sort of palace coup. Um, and there may be popular mobilization on the streets as well that helps that. But, you know, the Soviet Union didn't didn't fall because there was a, an obvious democratic leader um, right uh, in the wings. That was also a palace coup. Um, effectively. Um, and, and the beneficiary of that was Boris Yeltsin, um, who took over not as leader of the Soviet Union, though, but as president of, of, of a, a, you know, elected president of Russia. So um, I don't think anyone has any illusions, no, that there's some kind of democratic political figure waiting in the wings to take, take over. But there are, just to finish that, sorry, Tom, I know I'm giving yeah. you too long answers. There are other ways to pursue legitimate Russian national interests. Um, but it's but it's pretty difficult to see how Mr. Putin is actually helping Russia at the moment. And that's another tragedy here is he's destroying the gains of the last 30 years uh, yeah. in doing this. Final question. Um, Owen Harries, who was a longtime editor of the Washington-based National Interest, uh, who ultimately became a senior fellow at CIS, he, he died uh, just two years ago at the age of 90, Catherine, but he was a strong opponent of NATO expansion along with George Kennan and Paul Nitzer, two leading intellectual architects of the Cold War doctrine of containment. They opposed that in the mid to late 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote an article in Foreign Affairs magazine about 30 years ago, and it was called The Collapse of the West. And his central point was that in the absence of a life-threatening, overtly hostile East, the case for a united geopolitical security-oriented West would collapse. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been deep divisions uh, between Western Europe and the United States, and most notably in the lead up to the Iraq invasion of 2003. So the question here is, do you think that the, um, the more assertive, aggressive Russia today uh, will help reunify the West, and not just for the next few weeks, but for the next era? Mm -hmm. Catherine? 
I think it has actually. They, um, Mr. Putin's accomplished something that you know we couldn't do on our own by giving by giving us a villain. Um, and you know, it didn't have to be that way. Russia didn't have to turn out this way. There's no predetermined um, path that says you know Russians can't be democratic. On the contrary, every time they've been given the opportunity to be democratic, they've chosen it. Um, but he has stolen that uh, from from them. Um, the other thing is, you know, with NATO expansion. Well, do we do we really think that we would be in a different place right now if if you know North Macedonia hadn't joined NATO uh, in 2020? And by the way, that's not on Russia's borders. That just happens to be the most recent member yeah. of NATO. Uh, no, uh, I think what would have happened already is that uh, he would have taken Ukraine faster and moved into Poland potentially faster. That's that's um, Mr. Putin. Whether that serves a Russian national interest, I, I, I think we're clearly seeing that it does not. It is also he is also now destroying uh, his own country in a different way with uh, because of the of the sanctions. So they're just so I, I, I do think also, you know, uh, Russia is now going to be viewed even after Mr. Putin as untrustworthy. Um, and he's so he's destroyed its reputation internationally as yeah. well. Yes, well, this uh, to be continued. I mean, uh, Joe Joffe, uh, one of Germany's most distinguished intellectuals, a past guest at CIS, oh, wrote I know a piece Joe very in the Wall Street well. Journal recently. Okay. But he made he yeah. made the point. He just wanted to know. I mean, no one knows, of course. Will this turnabout in Germany's foreign policy? Germany's foreign mm -hmm. policy will that be lasting? And he raised the question: Will Germans be prepared to freeze for Kiev next winter if they don't resolve their? Um, energy problem but that's another issue catherine we are out of time thank you so much for being with cis is on liberty today my pleasure thanks so much for having me next week cis scholar my friend and colleague peter curdy will host the president of the australian jewish association david adler until next time thanks so much for watching on liberty i'm tom switzer till next time